This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, as we were talking about earlier, one of the stocks that certainly investors are not in love with, not going for that today, is Twitter. Uh, it is down 9.9% today uh, after reporting earnings. To help us make sense of it, turn to our old friend, Dan Morgan, Vice President and Senior Portfolio Manager for Synovus Trust Company. Overseeing Synovus does approximately $22.8 billion. He joins us on the phone from Atlanta. Dan, always good to catch up with you. Yes, yes. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate you having me back. So what's going on with Twitter here? Why, uh, why aren't people, I, I was going to say, why aren't people more excited? People are the opposite of excited with these numbers. Yeah, you know, Jason and Carol, it's so interesting because it seems to be a reoccurring theme with a lot of the technology stocks. I mean, if you look at the Twitter numbers, when they hit the tape, earnings were a beat, revenue was a beat. They also did better in advertising revenue than projected. They came in, you know, $795 million, up 23%. Their EBITDA was very strong. It also beat consensus um, at $396.5 million. But then the devil is always this guidance going into the next quarter. We yeah. saw this same scenario, Jason and Carol, with Amazon. We had good numbers, but wait a minute. Yeah. The revenue going to the next quarter, the range that they gave, what was it, 715 uh, was below. I think the midpoint, yeah. yeah, midpoint was 745. That was below consensus, which I think is around 765. So yep. that seems to be the devil right now in the technology sectors. Even though you may execute on all your matrix for the given quarter, if you're not giving an overly zealous outlook for right. that first quarter, especially in revenues, the street seems to want to sell the stock off. And it just brings up these concerns about the future and about future growth in terms of well, uh, sales growth. Dan, it's got to make sense. I mean, I'm just looking at one easy metric, and I'm looking at uh, the current P.E. and the forward-looking P.E. So when your you know, current P.E. is 45, your forward-looking is 34, right? You want things, when you report on earnings, you've got to show some optimism, right, to be able to justify valuations here. So is it a case of with Twitter, not a terrible quarter? It's just a case it doesn't live up to the expectations of investors. Well, you're right, Carol. I mean, when you have these high valuations, and you mentioned those current multiples, um, you basically have kind of a zero tolerance for anything but steady growth across the board, right? There's very little room for error in regards to these numbers when you trade at these huge multiples. And, you know, Twitter's not crazy. Uh, you know, they're growing advertising by 23 25%. And, you know, like you said, they're, they're trading a multiple going forward. I'm just looking at the at the screen right now, it's about 35 times fiscal year 2019 numbers. Right. That's, a, that's a EPS adjusted number. So, you know, it's not too bad. And, and they're expected to grow revenue this year about 13%. But you're right. I mean, the street wants to see powerful growth across the board to, to you know, compensate for this, this high multiple. And so synthesize this, Dan, with the rest of the tech names that you follow, because one of the reasons we love to talk to you for, for many reasons, but one of the reasons is because you, you have ownership and, and interest across a lot of different tech names, not just the FANGs, also the hardware makers as well. So is there a message that we're getting from the tech sector writ large here? 
Well, I think so, Jason. And I think the message is that, you know, expectations are built into the multiples, like Carol was mentioning. And then you have the fact that I think the numbers look pretty strong. I mean, there's arguments that you could have on a lot of these different companies in terms we mentioned Amazon earlier. Facebook was well received. But, you know, in terms of how these numbers are being perceived, it just seems to me like there's very little tolerance for anything other than perfection. Yeah. And I think that's where well it's really I, tough to execute in this environment. You know, the cloud is negative. The, the you know, yeah. <laughs> they're just right. looking for something to nitpick. And if you don't have a perfect, perfect report, they're going to hit you hard. Well, so, and in some ways, it what? feels like that tone kind of changed over the course of earnings season. You know, it's like there was a little bit of optimism you know, early we were on. We a lot of room with some of the big tech players, Yeah, I but then like. as – and to Dan's point, like as we've well, gone along – it's gotten I will, a little stricter. I feel like, though, Dan, Twitter is kind of an interesting case. I yeah. mean, the stock bounced back yes, uh, last year. Right? It's It's been on quite a run, and I think people are still trying to figure out the sustainability and the momentum in terms of growing revenues and so on and so forth. I mean, is it there? Has Twitter kind of figured out the business model, right? Because we've had a lot of questions. We love it. Jason and I love it. We're on Twitter. We're reading it and so on and so forth. And we should point out Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg Radio, produces a global breaking news network for Twitter. Um, Jason was on it this week doing TikTok, the State of the Union. Um, So I'm just curious, though, because we still are a little nervous about the sustainability of this business model. Well, I think you're right, Carol. And if, if you look at Twitter, what are they? They're really kind of a niche player, right? You look at Facebook's got what? 2.2, 2.3 billion people on their system. That's amazing. You've got YouTube, which is owned by Google. They're about 1.9 billion. And then you have these sub-businesses within Facebook, like WhatsApp at 1.5 billion. You've got uh, Messenger, Instagram, which are 1.5 and 1 billion. And then you've got this Twitter kind of sitting down there at about 325 uh, monthly average users, million users. And so it's very interesting. So you bring up a good point, and that is that you have 70% of the ad market being controlled by the biggest players, right? Google mm-hmm. and Facebook. And then you've got Snap and some of these other guys kind of fighting over the rest of it but yeah. twitter is a niche play because they're different right you don't you go on facebook you look at pictures you know what i mean you're on there for a half hour checking in with people with twitter you're checking it right yeah. checking the market you're checking something you're interested in uh while you're doing something else right and you look at it then you move on so they definitely have a niche and you know the key to this model i think going forward carol is is, is you've talked about before is right. controlling that opex controlling those expenses getting yeah. rid of those bogus accounts and i think they're doing a good job doing that so okay. I still look at Twitter as a niche play. Got it. But you're right. It is an interesting business model compared to, let's say, a Google and a Facebook. Dan Morgan, you're such a treat. Thank you so much. Nice to check in with you again. Dan Morgan, VP, Senior Portfolio Manager at Synovus Trust Company, on the phone from Atlanta. in our homes. That includes Jason and myself. We get our music uh, through our Sonos speakers. Here to talk a little bit about uh, the quarter, the business, the outlook is uh, the company's president and CEO. We're talking about Patrick Spence back with us. He joins us on the phone from Santa Barbara, California. We should point out Sonos did report their latest uh, quarterly update uh, after the close yesterday, and we did see some selling after hours, and we're seeing it continue uh, today. Patrick, great to have you back with us. I got to say, are you a little ticked off because your results topped estimates, and yet investors are really beating up your shares today? 
Well, it's great to be back, Carol. Uh, I think, you know, I've learned uh, that ultimately I focus on what we can control. And yeah. like you said, we delivered a record quarter in terms of uh, our largest profit in history and on the back of record sales and increasing efficiency. So those are the things we can control uh, and that we're really focused on. And we got an exciting year ahead. So we feel it was a good start to the year uh, and we're in good shape for the long term. I try not to get too caught up in the short term gyrations of the market. All right, and I wanna move on, but I have one last question. I'm curious about, in terms of the past quarter, inventory levels, should we be concerned that they're too high at the company? No, I, you know, we uh, just like to be transparent about the fact that uh, we did see some slowing in December, but we've also been very clear that we've seen uh, an acceleration in January, and so we feel good about uh, burning through the extra about two weeks of inventory we had at the end of December. So, Patrick, uh, take us inside. Uh, help us understand a little bit of what drove this quarter, but maybe more importantly, what's driving it going through 2019, especially because there are all sorts of questions out there. We've got a broader market sell-off right now, a little bit of a dent in consumer confidence, trade worries, things like that. And you do wonder how that plays through to uh, the consumer's mindset. What are you saying? Seeing a lot of, you know, this is really the golden age of audio. So what we saw in uh, in our fiscal Q1 is actually listening hours peaked over 1.8 billion hours on Sonos in that quarter, and that was up almost 40% year over year. And I think that's just a testament to everything that's happening in audio around music and streaming music, around podcasts. We saw Spotify moves yesterday around that, Sirius XM picking up Pandora. Um, we see a lot more audiobooks. We put Audible on the platform last year. And so we're feeling really good about the fact that we're in this golden age of audio, and I think that's really helping power the kind of results we saw in Q1 and, and what's going to help us as we think about the big picture over the long term. And we got a lot of exciting stuff planned for this year uh, as we add Google Assistant to the platform. Just this week, we introduced new products for in-ceiling, in-wall, and outdoor speakers. We've also got an exciting partnership with Ikea that comes later this year. So I feel like we've got a lot of you know, new product introduction uh, activities lined up to help really capitalize on this golden age of audio that we're seeing. Ikea, what's that about? Yeah, so that's really exciting because you know we obviously bring the sound expertise. They bring the in-the-home and furniture expertise. And so we're working together. You're going to see some new products that are new form factors for speakers and sound. Ah. Uh, you're going to see new countries that it brings us into, uh, and you're also ultimately going to see new price points as well that the Sonos experience reaches. And the nice thing is, as you both use Sonos and know, you can use your Sonos app to control these products. So they'll use the same Sonos app everybody is uh, familiar with and have the same kind of Sonos quality, uh, but you'll see some interesting form factors and kind of new ways to think about sound. All right. That doesn't mean we're going to have to put it together ourselves, right? <laughs> no, we're going to save you on that one. So right. no putting uh, no putting the speakers together yourself. Did you ever put one of those bully shelves or whatever oh the heck it goodness. is? Oh, my goodness. They are it's a insane. Can uh, I... Maybe they'll come with a side of meatballs. <laughs> I got to ask you um, something that I thought was interesting. Earlier this month, I like those meatballs, by the way. Uh, Sonos, we saw it really pop up on Monday. And a JP Morgan analyst came out and suggested that Sonos could be a strategic acquisition target for Apple. Uh, he did say the prospect of such a deal was speculative and theoretical. Is that the end game ultimately, pa Patrick? Does that make the most sense? I mean, would you be open to a deal with Apple? You know, I think uh, I'm really focused and everybody here is on making sure that we're in good shape as an independent company. You could see the $87 million in free cash flow we generated this quarter. Uh, we both, you know, we, we're this, we have a strong, clean balance sheet. So we're in a position where we actually are, you know, think about 
which companies we should be acquiring to help accelerate our product roadmap and how we think about that. If, if you know, something else were to occur at some point, obviously myself and the other board members would look at that, but it's certainly not something that uh, I pay much attention to. All right. I like you, but I, I got to push just a little bit more. So is it a case that you're not talking at all with Apple or anything at this point? Uh, we don't comment on any of the rumors that are out there. Uh, there's always lots of rumors flying around. <laughs> Uh, only about 20 seconds left. It sounds like you could be a buyer. Are you uh, seeing things out there at the right price? Uh, right now, we're looking at, you know, we look at, obviously, small companies yeah. and things mm. that we would want to pick up that would fit in with us. And so uh, we'd be more in the, the market on the private side and, and looking at companies that are doing interesting things around sound and software. I think there's a lot of interesting companies out there, and yeah. we've got a lot of ideas about how we expand into areas beyond the home. So it's definitely something we're uh, we're excited about. I got to say, I love the golden age of audio as yeah. a radio uh, network here. We got to love uh, you saying that. Patrick Spence, always good to check in with you. He's the CEO of Sonos, joining us on the phone from Santa Barbara, California. Well, Carol, you know one thing about me, at yes. least one, which I know many is. Things, but- I love private equity. You do love private equity. I love talking about it, uh, in part because it gives us such a window into the global economy, into the minds of CEOs, into the minds of all sorts of investors. Uh, Few people know more about this business than Antoine Drian. He is the chairman of Triago. I've known him for a long time. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. He is nominally based in Paris, but we know him to be (laughs) quite the man of the world. Uh, Clients all over the place. And Antoine, it's great to be with you. Thanks Thanks for stopping by. Thank you very much. Um, So give us a sense of where we are right now because, you know, we're looking at a public market that's sort of trying to make up its mind. It's had a nice run, but off today. A little volatility being introduced over the last uh, several months. And yet private equity feels like it's only getting stronger and stronger. Is that because it is sort of a uh, it goes the other way Uh, or is there just something different happening in the market right now? Well, you're right. Uh, the the last qu- the uh, Q4 of last year was actually interesting because the markets went down and private equity almost went up, right? Um, and I guess this is pretty counterintuitive. Uh, I think the main reason is that, I mean, many people finally understand that private equity is a great asset class. I mean, I'm completely biased, right? But I think it is. I mean, when you look at how resilient it is, when you look at how liquid it became and when you look at performance numbers, you want to be there. Well, let's talk about the liquid piece because I think people hear private equity and illiquidity is one of the first things that, that jumps to mind. How has it become more liquid? Yeah, well, I mean, private equity is illiquid right? Yeah. By, by essence. But, but there's something called the secondary market that's pretty active right yeah. now. There's been $66 billion of transactions on the secondary side last year. So that's pieces of funds changing hands, right? You can sell pretty quickly. Actually, you may be able to sell some stuff much more quickly than some some listed assets. Right. Um, So if you're a pension fund or an endowment or something like that, and you say, you know what, this just either performance-wise or kind of vintage-wise, this isn't working for me, there's someone else who who is likely to be able to to want to pick it up. Absolutely. It's not only about performance. It's really about portfolio management. Uh, There's a way out today. And and, and actually, the way out today can be positive. You're seeing some premium. Uh, It's not only about discounts. People who know this space would say, well, you know, I can get out, but... 
I'll take a 20, 30% haircut. Well, not today. In, on, on certain funds, you get like a 5%, 10% premium. Wow. So that's today, right? I mean, who, who knows if it will last? But I mean, it's, it's, it's a nice way out. I think it's safe to say, Antoine, that people would consider private equity still kind of a young industry, right, compared with some other investment strategies or asset classes. But I do wonder about, do you anticipate a time when there's greater regulatory oversight of private equity, that there, are, there, there will be that push for greater transparency? That's really starting, right? I think it started already. I think also the fact that most of the LPs are professional investors mm-hmm. make this makes this asset class, I would say, regulated by itself, right? I mean, some, some of the GPs have to be very careful. I mean, most of the GPs have to be very careful about what they say, what they write, etc., because they know they have a pretty sophisticated crowd in front of them. So I think it you is. We'll call them on the carpet. Yeah. Very quickly. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think this is this is this is in essence the big difference between public and private. I mean, private, you have some very sophisticated investors who precisely know what's going on. Well, and we've seen that. I mean, to me, one of the best examples of that it feels like over the last six to nine months is KKR and Bain essentially ponying up effectively severance for the employees of Toys R Us. There's a, they are, you know, in the public spotlight, maybe in a way they haven't been before. So one of the really fun things that you do uh, at the beginning of each year is you make some outrageous predictions that are very unlikely to come true. And then you make some more, (laughs) you know, kind of mainstream uh, predictions. Funny thing is when you look at the outrageous ones, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, secondary volume hitting $120 billion. This is my favorite. Carl Icahn replaces the management of half a dozen PE funds, sort of activism and private equity colliding. It's unlikely to happen. And yet <laughs> we could see some activism around PE, right? You know what? I believe that all 10 could happen. <laughs> yeah. I think all 10 will happen. I'm not sure they will happen in 2019. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure that you know, three, four of them may actually happen in 2019. So what's underneath the Carl Icahn one? Let's just dig into that one if we can for a second. Uh, there's no real activism in this space, yet many investors feel that there should be because some GPs are, 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 you know, are not as good as they should be. Maybe some of them should be you know, shaken up a little bit. And so there's room for LPs who can actually be a little bit, a little bit more demanding than your average you know, LP who's basically there for 10 years and doesn't ask for much more than the reporting. Because so many of these firms, and we've talked about this a lot on this show, the Blackstones, the KKRs, Carlisle, yeah. Apollo, Oak Tree, they're all publicly traded at this point. So that, that puts them in a different category than they were for a long time. Yes. I think it's not only those who may actually become targets of activists. It's also the pure private funds. Interesting. Right? Uh, the, the, the firms you're referring to are mostly man, quoted listed management companies, not the funds themselves. I think some activists should be looking at funds and not only at management companies. So wow. they, those, those would be real private entities, right? Not listed. Yeah. So how does the kind of general macro environment impact the PE investing environment? Because I think there's a lot of questions out right, right now. And I, I'm curious what you're hearing, too, from those major players in the PE industry about what they're seeing. Well, it does, obviously, right? It would be f- f- stupid to say that, that, you know, the PE is immune and that it, there's no, there, no link to uh, the general economic sentiment and... and 
Uh, now, the interesting story about PE is that you have very different strategies. Uh, some people are now more interested in distress, turnaround, mm -hmm. etc., and they can go there and put lots of money at work. The other interesting aspect is that all these transactions are actually negotiated and all the companies are very well followed. So uh, this means that you know, in, in PE players can really pick and choose what they want to do. And then they are, even if they're not in control all the time, they can pretty much influence things. And so as you think about other predictions, only get about, got about 30 seconds left. What's the one real <laughs> prediction that you think is going to come true? He said he thought all of uh, them I know. <laughs> over time. The question is when. I think the, the secondary volume yeah. uh, that you referred to a few minutes ago is, 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 is going to happen. I'm not sure it's going to be 120. I think it's going to be at least 100 because there's so much going on. Also, on the direct side, it's not only about LP stakes, but portfolios. And that's a nice way out for people who may feel they're stuck with a few illiquid assets. Antoine Drian, chairman of Triago, based in Paris, but here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Such a treat to catch up with you. You're so smart about this very, very fascinating and important well, part of the market. Especially when you've got institutions, academic and otherwise, you know, family offices, you know, more aggressively getting into the PE space uh, when they're looking for investments. So it's really great to keep on top of it. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. All right, well, let's go to one of the big stories of the day, and that is the merger of BB&T and SunTrust. For more on that, we bring in Peter Winter. He is Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Uh, joining us on the phone from Long Island. Peter, this, this is the sort of deal that really caught a lot of people's attention because it's been a long time, and this is a big deal. It's a WOA moment. Woa. Woa. How are you doing? <laughs> Very good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's the first deal, big deal since uh, the Wells Fargo-Wachovia deal. Right. Yeah, in more than a decade. So it's, it's the whole idea of kind of, I guess, keeping up with the bigger rivals, right? And you've got the financial industry going through transformations, technology playing a bigger, bigger role. And you also have startups kind of, you know, going after the banking sector. So um, is it a good combination for you? Does it make sense? And I am curious what it might cause other members of the banking community to maybe have to do something. You know, it does make sense. I mean, I think culturally it, it's a great fit. You've got two organizations both competing in the southeast. You've got evenly split between uh, the executive board and the uh, uh, board of directors. They're going to move into a new market, uh, Charlotte, North Carolina. They're going to rebrand and rename the company. Uh, but more importantly, what I like about this deal it's more than just cost saves. There are a lot of revenue opportunities which weren't even included in the deal, but you're, com you're taking the best of two good, very strong franchises where I think that there's going to really be revenue synergies, and it's not just a cost-driven uh, deal. And so does this combined bank continue to gobble up some of the now much smaller regional players in the southeast? Does this cause other regional banks in other parts of the country uh, to maybe think more strongly uh, about getting together? What's, what's the knock-on effect here? Sure. I, I don't think you'll see – There's this deal will go through 2021 uh, for the integration, so I think that that will be the focus. Given their size, I don't think that they'll uh, look to do other acquisitions. But I think the thing that's interesting is that 
coming out of the financial crisis, this is the first large deal right. uh, where it's above $50 billion, uh, in assets. We really haven't seen anything happen. Uh, where two two banks above fifty billion or even a hundred billion have combined, so I, I do think there is the potential uh, that you could see more M and A activity. I don't think it, it's a a flood of M and A activity, but it certainly could be potential for yeah uh, more M and A activity given the more favorable regulatory. Peter, what does it mean for consumers? Like I, I just do wonder as. You know, either mid-sized banks as they get, you know, combinations and then they become bigger banks. Do they then squeeze out small businesses? Do they squeeze out more of the retail investors? I mean, do we have to be concerned about that? I think just the opposite. I, I think that what what, you're, what they are both focused on trying to deliver um, better services, both to small business and retail customers through innovation technology. So I, I think it's actually going to be uh, looking to give better service uh, to the consumer. Uh, I think it'll be advantageous uh, for the consumer uh, with this combination with better technology and better service. Peter Winter, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities, joining us on the phone from Long Island on the BB&T SunTrust merger. I have to say, this is the cynical part of me. What? God knows what they're going to name this combined thing. You know, like I, I just wince every time something Those focus like groups that, are hard that at work. needs to happen. You know, I, I, I know, I know. Right. Like what's the name? So, yep, the Super Bowl just wrapped up. But for those big fans of football, wait, there's more. The Alliance of American Football beginning its first season, kicking off this Saturday with games airing on CBS, NFL Network, and also Turner. Here to fill us in is Charlie Ebersol. He's founder and CEO of the Alliance of American Football in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. He, like me, having a little bit of a cold. So, anyway. Yes, I do not <laughs> normally sound so dulcet. <laughs> we like it. We like it. Tell us about what you are doing and tell us about this league. You know, it's an interesting thing. Professional football. Football is the only sport in the United States that doesn't have an alternative league. And when you look at the dominance of professional football, um, 200 million people watch college and professional football from August to February. And then when it goes off the air, about 80 million people stop watching sports altogether. And so we looked at that arbitrage and said, why hasn't this worked in the past and what can we do? And the number one thing is nobody ever put quality football on the field. So we went and my co-founder is Bill Polian. Um, and we got great coaches, Steve Spurrier and Mike Martz and Mike Singletary, uh, Rick Neuheisel, uh, Dennis Erickson. And then what we did is we really focused on what our relationship with the NFL would be. And we created a extraordinary relationship. Not only are we on CBS, which is the NFL's largest partner and just right. had the Super Bowl, but we're also on the NFL network. And part of the reason we are is because we created something called the NFL Out for our players. Mm -hmm. So a player can play in our league, and at the end of the season, we will release them if they get picked up by the NFL to go play in the NFL. So for the first time, not only putting quality football on the field in the spring, but we're also having a completely symbiotic and complementary relationship with the NFL. Well, it also sounds like, and this is not surprising given your own background, that you've thought about media in a much more candidly like 2019 way you're being able to build it smartly and not have to sort of essentially retrofit a product into the modern uh, media era tell us about that look the business model of spring football doesn't really work 
You have to spend so much money for the first two years. You're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars for the first two years before you even start to flirt with the idea of being profitable. That we needed to be, build a business model that went beyond the traditional, okay, we're going to have a media partner who's going to pay us a lot of money. We do have great media partners. We have CBS, we have the NFL Network, we have Turner, we have BR Live. But what we did on the other side, and we raised most of our money in Silicon Valley around, with venture capitalists around the idea that we're building this tech company. And what we did is we created something called the Alliance app, which becomes available tomorrow. It's the first time in the history of professional sports that you have fully real-time data coming off the field. And what that allows to happen is, traditionally, if you were to play um, fantasy or any of the games, you're using StatCast or right. GameCast or right. NextGen Stats. On average, they're about 20 to 15, uh, 15 to 25 seconds delayed. Ours is 200 milliseconds. So not only do we deliver a fully animated version of the game in real-time, we also layered a game on top of it where you can guess the next play. MGM, who's one of our largest investors, is then taking that API and ultimately over the course of this season and next, they'll be able to have fully real-time in-game gaming. What about with- Instant Replay? I got to so, ask you, like, I'm curious because it's been such a controversy. Like, how do you guys work that in? So we created something called the Sky Judge. We created a ninth huh. official. So what actually ends up happening is we have, of the eight officials that are on the field, we added a ninth that's in the skybox. That official has the ability to watch all the camera angles. And if there's an egregious play that goes uncalled or in the last five minutes of the game, there's de- uh, pass interference that, that really dramatically changes the outcome of the game. He has the ability to throw a flag from the skybox and stop that from happening. An egregious non call that would never happen. No, no, no. I've ne- in the history of football, we've never seen anything like that. Certainly not in a deciding game. You guys have a focus on, uh, just looking at some of the stuff you guys sent over, a focus on player well-being on and off the field. Tell us about that. So one of the things that I have always felt is really important around companies that I've started is that we have a responsibility to do more than just create a product we can sell. So I partnered with a longtime friend of mine, one of the greatest football players of all time, Troy Palomalo, and I had him create the player relations group. So Troy took his 15 years in the NFL playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers into account, and he said, these are the things that I would have wanted to happen. Full health care for me and my family so that I'm not thinking about anything off the field. So we give all of our players full health care, dental um, for them and their families. We give them 401k plans. They have bonusing programs so that while they're playing, if they do community service work, if they do fan engagement online, if they sell merchandise, uh, meaning if the team, the Arizona Hotshots sell merchandise, all the team players bonus off of the sale of that merchandise and obviously on-field skills. And then lastly, we created a post-career system. So every year you play in our league, you get a one-year scholarship to post-secondary education. And additionally, you get vocational training, job training, and job search and financial literacy training while you're in the league. The thing that was remarkable to me is 70% of our players played in the NFL in the last 18 months. 78% graduated four years of college. Wow. So a lot of the scholarships we're actually giving to these kids is um, uh, law school, business right. school, and, and this post-secondary vocational right. education that actually leads to something. Look, football is a moment in your life. It's not your whole life, and we have a responsibility to help these kids have that moment after football. All right, so kickoff Saturday this week? Saturday, 8 p.m. on CBS. Um, we have two games simultaneously, and then Sunday night in prime time on, Sunday, on uh, NFL Network. And then following that, every weekend, it'll be Saturday and Sunday night in prime time on the NFL Network, and on the afternoons on Saturday on Turner, and Sunday afternoons on CBS SN. Wives, and every game is available on our app. Just going to say, wives, partners, you've just lost your spouses. I, my kids are going to be <laughs> yeah. excited. My 14 year old said to me last night, he's like, football's over, right? And I knew that we were going to have you, and I said, not so fast. Football, the interesting thing about it is it's the four-quadrant sport. Mom, Dad, Billy, and Sue watch yes, it evenly. There I will go. agree with that. Charlie Ebersole, good luck. Thank you very Look much. Look forward to hearing more in the future. Founder, CEO of the Alliance of American Football in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. 
seem to be catching people's attention here, JJ. Uh, on the positive side, uh, Chipotle. I mean, that was one. We talked a little bit about it uh, in the aftermarket yesterday. Sort of an interesting name given all the trials and tribulations uh, that name's been through over the past year or two. Yeah, it's pretty amazing when you look at a $500 stock that's up 11%. Yeah. You, look at that er- you look at that earnings report and you're like, okay, we, you, know, you don't normally talk about digital and then talk about brick and mortar for a fast food restaurant. But this is really an incredible story. 13% growth or 13% overall sales were digital, which is absolutely amazing. And then you have same store sales up, you know, uh, at the same time better than expected. So, you know, I, I think a lot of the uh, clothing manufacturers et cetera, are looking at that with jealously right. saying, my God, how are they doing that? So uh, that's really why Wall Street loves this earnings report so much, because, you know, you guys spend a lot of time talking about the fact that it's usually some sort of balance between same store sales and digital. When you're hitting on both to that level, that's pretty incredible. You know, Jason, I like to watch things like the socks, right? Because so many devices that we use at work, at home 
come at play, um, have semiconductors in it. So we watch that space so closely. Uh, it's definitely bounced since that December 24th low, uh, but uh, not quite at the high we saw back in, uh, I guess, early September. Um, oh, and I just want to mention a headline. Forgive me for a second. Sears Judge clearing the way for Eddie Lampert's $5.2 billion deal to buy the retailer. There you go. Keeps Eddie on going. Gets wow. to live another day. <laughs> so tell me, about the, <laughs> tell me about the semiconductor space. Um, are you watching it? What does it tell you? Well, it's kind of interesting, and I think you hit on something important in that the fact, um, you know, yesterday what I thought was a really key day for the semiconductors. Actually, you look at them today, it seems like most of them are down 1% to 2%. But yesterday we had like Xilinx of the world, et cetera, coming back, and we haven't really talked much about that name recently. And 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 the chip makers overall, except for perhaps Intel, were up about three, four percent. And the reason I say yesterday was so important is because it was on the same day that the gaming stocks mm-hmm. came out with really disappointing earnings. So actually, I think the chip makers today are are a, a result of the U.S.-China trade talks. But overall, I'm pretty hopeful there, you know, not wildly have to buy them, but I am hopeful that the, the carnage may have been a little bit overdone because what we are seeing is that the higher-end consumer in China seems to be healthy with all that we're seeing out of there, and they'll continue to buy things. Now, again, you know, gaming is a big part of what they do, but it's, uh, it, 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 it was um, a good day for them yesterday. And I don't think you're seeing that mad rush that, oh, my God, it's going to be terrible in 2019. I have to dump these stocks that I think was a little bit of the thought process, as you said, at the end of last year. JJ, talk to us about video games. I have to say it's one of our favorite things to talk about, even though neither of us really plays video games. But we have a great <laughs> analyst here who we like to talk to. And we are uh, surrounded by teenagers who are pretty obsessed with it. At least I am. I won't speak for Carol. Um, but those those stocks have really you know, been interesting to watch and all working in the in the shadow of Fortnite, it feels like well and that's exactly it you know you have the <clears throat> you talk about a disruptor in the space you know you can you, you usually consider it to, when you talk video games and, and and some of them have recovered today you know looking at activision up about two and a half percent yeah the ea sports the activisions of the world those are the names you usually go to and they're they're the ones who are having troubles you know you saw ea sports trying to get their Battlefield game out at the end of last year, ran into some difficulties. And, you know, as you say, meanwhile, your competitors coming out with Fortnite in the hottest game that anybody's seen in a long, long time and may be able to build an entire franchise around what they're seeing there, much like the, I'll call them old school, uh, with Activision and EA Sports, uh, brands were able to do for many, many years. All right. So in this environment, I'm just curious, are you adding to equity positions? Are you reducing them, especially after the pop we've already seen uh, this year and then throwing some more money into cash? How are you playing it right now? Well, I think right now you have to play it. You're seeing the volatility is measured by VIX today at about 16 and a half. It's still uh, actually a little surprising to me to see it that low, given what we have it coming up with is we mentioned a few times the tariff situation, but let's not forget we have Brexit coming up also. And so with all that, uh, I, I think that we're going to continue to see uh, volatility and, and, and stocks moving on because I, I'm looking for the next few weeks saying, okay, what's the catalyst for us to go much higher? It's only a settlement of those two. What's mm-hmm. the catalyst to go much lower? Bad news from those two. What does that mean? The worst type of trading, in my opinion, and that is the news of the day 
driving, as we see today, driving the market up, driving the market down. And some decent story tomorrow, we'll all be talking a different story. So that's right. very dangerous. And yeah. I think the biggest thing is uh, not that I'm staying in cash, but keep, uh, keeping in mind my time frame for the positions. There are some things I am going to trade shorter term because I think they're just getting beaten up too much in a day. But if you, you know, your listeners are saying, okay, this is a good time to buy a stock that's getting beaten up because I think it's a good stock for the long term. The thing they have to be patient about is, okay, don't pay attention to the intraday news. Keep it as a longer term. And that's the biggest mistake I think retail investors tend to make. They forget yeah. their time frame. And you definitely, in this type of market, have to spell that out. You're right. you got to kind of have it set and remember that. JJ, thank you. JJ Kinahan. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.